Father, open our deaf ears and bring to life our dead hearts afresh as we hear your um, word, as we hear your voice. As we often pray, Lord, we don't simply want to understand this passage better, um, to grasp what's going on, but actually we want to hear what it is you're saying to us, us as a church and us as individuals. So be with us, we pray. Amen. Um, If you're just visiting us today, a warm welcome to you. You need to know that we've just finished five chapters worth of tangent from Paul. He's writing to this church in Corinth, as you may have picked up. Um, Relationships there are frayed. Um, Things have been more than a little awkward. Because you see, Paul loved them. He had spent about a year and a half with them, and he had poured himself into them, but then been moved on to pastures new. But as he left, it turns out things had got a bit sour. The relationship between Paul and the Corinthians had taken something of a nosedive, largely because they were listening to these new teachers in town. Um, Corinth was a place that loved um, power and looking impressive and strength and sounding wise and rhetoric and eloquence. And, And these new teachers then... Well, they look and they sound and they appear to be spot on. They are very Corinthian, very impressive. And then you look at Paul, and he just isn't. He doesn't sound or look or seem to be particularly wise or eloquent or impressive. So that's the first reason that this relationship has soured. But the second one, it's also soured because of something back in chapter 2. Maybe you remember it. Um, It was a letter, a difficult letter that Paul had written to them. Uh, It was probably dealing with some kind of very unpleasant sin within the church. Um, And Paul had sent it with Titus, wanting them to to change in response to this letter. So flip back if you can, if you've got a Bible there, do open up to page um, 1160. And I'm reading from the top of that bit there, chapter 2 and verse 3 to 4 where we first hear about this difficult letter. He said, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who who should have made me rejoice. So he was planning on visiting, but he's written in advance. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So remember, Paul writes the letter, gives it to Titus. Titus travels to Corinth to drop it off to them. Um, But Paul had not heard back from Titus. There had been nothing. Silence. No response. Um, To the extent, actually, if you just flick down the rest of that column there to verse 12, do you remember this extraordinary idea? Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So the Lord has opened a door for the gospel, but actually Paul, in some sense, chooses not to take it because there is no Titus. He's concerned, he's restless, he's unable to function properly because he's not heard back. Had Paul overdone it in his letter? Was he too hard, too harsh? Had they welcomed Titus? Had they rejected Titus? And so here this morning, we get back onto that narrative track again. Five chapters later, after five chapters of beautiful tangent explaining what the new covenant is and what new covenant ministry looks like, here he gets back onto the idea of the letter and his relationship with them. And if you remember, it all looked pretty um, 
touch and go, actually. But here we'll see this morning things are on the up. So have a look down with me. Um, He appeals for them, verse 2. So we're back on page 1163, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 2. He appeals to them to make room for him in their hearts, verse 2. He's cared for them. He's not wronged them. He loves them. Verse 3, they have room in his heart. And yet verse 5, it's here again, this this thread. You realize how bad things had got We went to Macedonia, we had no rest, we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within. He's in a pretty bad place not having heard back from Titus. But then he gives us in this morning two reasons to be hopeful, two reasons to be hopeful that they won't reject him. Two reasons that Paul has to be hopeful that the Corinthians will indeed make room for Paul in their hearts. And the first one comes up because of the comfort he receives from Titus. That seems to be a verse 5 to 7. And then at the end again as well, verse 13 to 16. Why is Paul hopeful that they will receive him? Well, because he's heard back from Titus. And if you were around, you might remember from the beginning of this series that that comfort word is a really important one. Do you remember in chapter 1? He, he cho- chooses it here deliberately to latch on to those ideas from chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. It's a loaded word. Ours is a a God of comfort, says Paul. A God who comforts his people, said Paul. Believers aren't spared hardship, but God does provide consolation and support and encouragement and comfort for us in the midst of all that's going on. In the midst of real trouble and real affliction, God is not distant and far off and aloof he does not leave us alone to do it alone but he is with us and he comforts his people and that can just be a sense of God with us in the midst of the mess I'm sure many of us will be able to relate to that everything seems to be falling apart but we know a comfort from the Lord but actually often it can be through someone else as well so in the midst of the mess someone turns up with a meal And the Lord's representative, therefore, turns up. And so as Titus arrives to Paul, God's comfort arrives to Paul with Titus. But actually, it's more than that. Verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. Is that truth that we saw again in chapter 1 being worked out in real time? Do you remember? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we receive from the Lord. There's this trickle-down cascade effect going on. The Corinthians had comforted Titus. Paul had bragged about Titus, it seems, bragged to them to Titus, sorry, about the Corinthians. And then, and then had the relationship been so soured that they would not receive Titus? Well, no. Titus is comforted, and he brings that comfort with him. That may be a practical thing. It may be a financial thing. That may just be a word from the Lord or just news that they are doing well. But this cascade effect of comfort that is passed on to us, that we pass on to others. 
as we comfort others, so the Lord is using us to bring that comfort. And it's worth at that point just to press pause and notice a couple of things about the reality of what the Christian life looks like. Actually, we've, we've prayed about it lots already this morning as we've thought of Stu and Hannah and Thanksgiving and parenting and that kind of stuff. The need for other people. So firstly, just notice that Paul's concern for others is amazing. Isn't that true? That his inability to function, his, his inability to rest because he's not heard from them is extraordinary. He, he seemed to have an enormous heart. Enormous. And in a world that keeps people at arm's length, and in a culture where we're not willing to be vulnerable, to not let others affect us, we, we avoid them. We block them, we mute them, we unfollow them if we find them annoying. But Paul knew our need to love others. Isn't that striking? Isn't that countercultural? To be human is to allow ourselves to be affected by others. Um, C.S. Lewis famously puts it like this. I think he's right. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable, says Lewis. And so Paul says, verse 7, he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. I find that beautiful. Paul's very joy here is bound up with their well-being. In their love for Paul and in their love for Paul's gospel, therefore, well, there Paul finds joy, allowing himself to be affected by them. It's a very countercultural way of seeking joy, isn't it? To see them grow and mature and flourish is what makes Paul rejoice. This is how Christian community was made to work. It means we need to think about things like, how willing are we to be affected by others? How much do we just keep people at arm's length away from us in case they're prickly or in case they're difficult? How much do we wrap up our hearts, as Lewis might say? Or how much do we find joy as we love others and pour ourselves out for them? The flip side of the coin is Paul's need for others is amazing too. It goes both ways. It's a simple fact, and we might miss it, but Paul is overjoyed by the arrival of his disciple Titus, who brought good news. So he started off in a pretty bad place, verse 5, harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, he's downcast, and then he's comforted. His, his friend comes, and everything changes. 
Yes, we were made to love others and to care for them and to allow them and their well-being to affect us. But, but it goes the other way too, doesn't it? Paul was, if you like, Paul was the mentor. Titus was the mentee. Is that a word? Titus was the disciple. And yet it's as Titus arrives that Paul's joy comes, Paul's hope changes. And again, of course, this is a specific thing, a specific instance, there's a context to it. But there's a wider principle for us to latch onto as well. In, in simple terms, we might be the means in which the Lord brings comfort to other people. Which I take it is a real privilege. It might mean specifics for us. It might mean the need to pursue others. Perhaps where you've not been sure about getting in contact with someone, this might be the nudge that you need as you see, as you see they might need you. Perhaps that conversation or the text or the phone call or whatever it might be, you've been putting it off. But maybe this is the reminder to get back in contact. It might be a very small scale thing, but, it, but the Lord might use it greatly. We're... We're a people who need friends. We're a people who need others. We were not meant to do it by ourselves. So why is Paul hopeful that they're going to make room for him in their hearts? Well, firstly, because of the comfort he receives from Titus. Um, the second reason, though, is tied up with, with their response to his letter. Let me read um, verse 8 to 11 again for us and then try and unpack some of what's going on. Verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So looking firstly at verse 8, and we'll jump in there. Um, remember, Paul's concern was that he had gone too far with his letter. He, he loved them, he cared about them. Um, he's explicit about that back in um, 2 verse 4 as we read, I, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to, to let you know the depth of my love for you. And you see, because he loved them, he challenged them. You have to be careful with our motives in this, but sometimes we have to do that. If we love someone, we will at times correct them. We will at times say hard things. We might at times write difficult letters even. And it seems initially he regretted it. He's doubting himself. But then he sees the response that the Lord brings from the letter. And this is surprising and maybe it's difficult for us to latch onto and understand. But it's worth thinking about this whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, if you are, or if you're just not quite sure. When it, when it comes to sin and sorrow, says Paul, there are two types of response 
two types of response we need to understand. Verse 10 is the key verse, so zoom in there. And we're on page 1163, two-thirds of the way down the left column. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Friends, getting this right is important, and being prepared to ask ourselves hard questions on this is actually really important. It's important for the Christian because repentance is not just something we do once, but it's something we do daily, something we'll do for the rest of our lives. And it's something that if we get wrong, can be disastrous. We need to do it daily because our hearts are like car tires that need their tracking sorted. And we constantly turn to self. We constantly veer towards self and away from him, even in the way that we do repentance and sorrow. And so getting this distinction right is important, which is why we're going to press pause and think about this quite carefully. There's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. And on the, on the outside, they can look very similar. You can talk to two people, both feeling sorrow. You can listen to two people, both singing sorrowfully, perhaps in sadness over their sin. But they can be doing it for very different reasons. So let's try and understand what's going on. We'll pull into a proverbial lay-by. And think about this. What is worldly sorrow? What is worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow is the fact that our hearts have a way of twisting sorrow into it being about us. Which means worldly sorrow is inward focused. It's a kind of selfishness or even a self-righteousness in our sorrow. It's a kind of repentance that is sad, but it's only sad because of the consequences for us. Think of a purely hypothetical scenario. Think of, think of siblings squabbling, playing Monopoly. Siblings who are made to say sorry, but don't actually really feel sorry. Really, they're only saying sorry to avoid the consequences of being punished. Well, we don't grow up much more from that. How much more for us? as we relate to the God who made us. How can this worldly, self-centered, inward-looking sorrow, how can that manifest itself? What might that look like? Um, Just a few ideas. Um, It might be, worldly sorrow might be about embarrassment. You're embarrassed of being caught doing what you've done. And so your sorrow is, well, what are they going to think of me now? I'm not going to be able to show my face here. How will I be able to face them now that they know the truth about me? So we're sorry, but it's about us. Maybe there's a shame and regret here. A shame and regret that kind of looks in the mirror and says, I will never be able to forgive myself for what I have done. I will never be able to move on. I will never be able to get over it. But actually, do you see that's a perception of ourselves? That's about us. Maybe it's a kind of self-pity. I can't believe I did this again. I am such a fool. I can't believe it. And we beat ourselves up about it. Maybe even there can be a kind of self-flagellation where we almost attempt to atone for our own sin by saying, look how sorry I am, God. Look at me. 
You've got to take my repentance seriously now. And we try and convince him and we try and convince us that we are so truly miserable and regretful that we must deserve to be forgiven, mustn't we? We try to earn our forgiveness through the strength of our repentance, almost. Looking back, I'm pretty sure as a teenager at church, that was a big thing for me. Week after week, heartfelt singing songs of weekly repentance, but really they were about me saying sorry to, than about saying sorry to God. Trying to prove to him that really I was sorry, actually. Or maybe our worldly sorrow, this is the fourth one I could come up with, maybe it's because we don't think God will give us what we want anymore. And we treat God as if there's some sort of contractual obligation and we're sorrowful over our sin, but only because we might be missing out now. And so God ends up being like the proverbial drinks machine. We put the pound coin in, out, out comes the can of Coke, we get what we want. But maybe because you've been found out, it's as if you put the pound coin in and just annoyingly it keeps dropping through. Why would it take my pound coin? And you put it in and it just, you know what I mean? Maybe the worldly sorrow is a bit like that. It's about me and not getting what I, or thinking I won't get what I'm going to get from God anymore. And reflecting this week, I wonder if worldly sorrow is more common than we might imagine. Perhaps even it's often what those who wouldn't call themselves Christians think repentance is about. Or maybe even it's for, for us who come to church week by week, we think repentance is about that. It's the gutted you've been found out. It's being made to make the proverbial confession before the Lord. It's making yourself feel sorry enough that God just has to wipe the slate clean. But the striking thing is, Paul's joy is that the Corinthians did not respond with worldly sorrow, but they responded with godly sorrow, which is very different. The big difference with godly sorrow is, is not a sorrow that seeks to keep God off our back or to keep him okay with us. It's not about the consequences for us. But simply there's sorrow because of how it's affected our relationship with God. It's a God-centered sorrow because we know that's not how his people live anymore. It's a godly sorrow because fundamentally it's about relationship. It's about him and how we've offended him rather than us. So maybe in a worldly sorrow, we try and earn our forgiveness with our repentance. In a godly sorrow, we just receive it. It's a gift. The work has already been done. Jesus has died already for your sin. Maybe in a worldly sorrow, we try and make ourselves suffer to make him forgive us, but... But Jesus has suffered enough already. Your sin has been dealt with. One writer puts it like this. In the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we are flawed because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. You see, he knows us. 
He knows about your sin. And yet he still loves you. And he still forgives you. And you are still precious in his sight. And so that means, that means worldly sorrow has no place in our lives. It means we are free to engage in godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And repentance, well, repentance is about turning from something to something else. So it's as if we've turned from God. And as we repent, we're turning back to him again. If I can put it this way, some, sometimes people say re- repentance is directional. In all relationships, repentance is directional. It's, it's not simply a word we say, but it's a turning back it's a refocus, it's a change in direction, which means, which means if you are a squabbling sibling playing Monopoly, a godly sorrow and a repentance for both of them is that they would actually see how much they've hurt each other and want to repair the relationship, turning back again towards each other. It's not a sorrow for being caught, not a sorrow for being punished, but simply to repair the relationship. With people, it's on both sides. So repentance means both turn together again. As we relate to God, it's simply us turning back to him. And their repentance, back into the passage, long lay by, their repentance does lead to something. You see, it leads to changed lives. We turn from self back to God. And so what did that look like for the Corinthians? Well, verse 11, there's an earnestness and an eagerness and an indignation and an alarm and a longing and a concern and a readiness to see justice done. They act upon Paul's letter. Their directional change back to Paul and so back to God leads to a change in their behavior and their priorities. And as I said, this is for all believers. Repentance is something that we do once and forever. And it's something we do every day. Maybe you're here and you know you need to do that once and forever repentance. A turning back to God again. Maybe you know you've been running or hiding or there's shame, there's guilt. and It's a godly sorrow you need, though. It's not a... Not because you've been found out, not because of the consequences, not because you want something from him, but only because you see now how kind and gracious he is and you see your need to turn back to him again. And if that's you, then today would be a great day to do that. It's a gift he would love to give you. But brothers and sisters, it's a daily thing too. Paul is addressing these Corinthians as believers. At verse 4, he takes great pride in them. Verse 14, he boasts in them. Verse 15, he has affection for them. Verse 16, he has complete confidence in them. Christians still need to repent. We're not finished articles. We're not who we ought to be. We're not who we will be. There, there ought to be daily room for godly sorrow. Daily turning back to him. Daily trusting in his grace. Daily receiving his gift. Daily repentance. And in a moment we're going to have time to do that together. There'll be a brief silence. Then I'm going to lead us in prayer.
then we'll sing a couple of songs that will help us articulate some of those ideas of repentance we've been thinking about. Our Father in heaven, we confess we we need to hear your voice because so easily we get it wrong. We thank you that you are the God who comforts. We thank you that you send people to bring your comfort. We thank you for the privilege of being those sent to others and for the encouragement of others coming to us. Lord, you know the reality of what's going on in this room at the moment, the reality of difficult lives, difficult situations. And so we pray that where needed, you would indeed bring comfort this week. And indeed, we might be open to going to comfort others. We confess as well the the way that we can make sorrow about us. And we are sorry for that. Guard us, please, from our pride and our selfishness. Help us, please, to to know what godly sorrow looks like. We thank you for your gift of grace. We thank you for your kindness. Thank you that we don't have to punish ourselves to deal with sin, to prove to you that we're really sorry because your son has suffered enough for our sin. And so help us pleased to be a people, to be a church even, who daily turn to you in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.